Welcome to episode 25 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, the podcast where I and Clayton talk about this week's or next week's rather uh, passages in our Bible reading plan and answer any listener questions. Let's get started. So kind of circling back to the wisdom literature, a question that I have is, it's like we've talked about throughout as we've started this podcast and this journey through the Bible, we've emphasized several times that, you know, yes, the Bible contains a lot of laws and commands. Uh Yes, God gives us clear commands and expectations for our lives through scripture. Right. But... That does not mean that we are meant to take uh, one-to-one kind of commands or ideas for our life from all of the passages of Scripture. It's like we read Leviticus 11. We do not need to change our diet, you know, based on ancient Israelite dietary laws. Or we read, you know, the stories about David's band of merry men raiding these villages, and we are not to then go, oh, okay, so it's all right Mm -hmm. for us to do violence, (laughs) You know, in the name of God or whatever else. And so just reflecting on kind of, and so what we've said is that rather than that, you know, that these stories are trying to certainly teach us things, but more more in the way of forming us in wisdom, forming mm-hmm. us in Christ-likeness, which I think are just two words for the same yes. thing. And so just reflecting on the wisdom literature specifically, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, uh, Job, which I mean we read earlier on, mm-hmm. but but uh, genre-wise kind of belongs more with the wisdom literature. Like how do we how do we take these books or let me let me say it like this maybe. How does the Bible help us make decisions and choices in our lives Oof. if it's not always giving us so if my expectation should be, you know, and these, I'm totally just making these numbers up, but let's say, you know, 10% of the time a Bible passage has a direct command that immediately translates into our context, right? Sure. Be kind, don't steal, <laughs> you know, whatever. And it's like, all right, roger that. But then the other 90% of the time, it's just weird stories about rape and angels and, you know poems about cities that we've never been to and don't know anything about so like how does that form us in wisdom or like what does that what does that look like for the bible to actually inform our choices and our thinking i mean there's a lot of differences between us and the original audience of the wisdom literature right we are on we are in different places different times but also i think most importantly we are in different covenants and so things are a little bit different for us than they were for them in a variety of ways but I think as I read, I mean, the song is difficult because we can be, there's a term for when we read our own situation back into the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, It's called anachronism. We have this idea that things then were just like they are now. And so we, I think, need to be careful not to presume that some of the, the common cultural sexual issues that might be spoken to today by the song are the same as they were then, right? But I do think that there is there is positives that can come out of that about the goodness of sex in a in a marriage. So we can take that picture that's described in the song and allow the Bible to show us something good from it and not one for one. These are not pickup lines to use on your significant other. Um, they're not one-to-one talking about what sex and marriage should be like. But I think a perspective of the goodness of sex in the covenant of marriage is is given. And so we can we can take that from the song 
and apply it to our own lives very easily. Again, we're not applying one for one there, we're, we're just allowing the song to speak to us today. The same is true if the, if the song is supposed to be allegorical, then I think that that is easy for us to do, to see Christ and uh, the two, his two natures or Christ and the church spoken about there. Proverbs is, and Ecclesiastes are interesting because in Proverbs especially, you just get these lists of, of statements and they are sometimes contradictory, um, sometimes repeated, often, often just very intuitive, common sense. Um, and if a person were to just live by them, what we would probably do is see some wisdom in that person today, but we'd also see a lot of a lot of mistakes made because they're supposed to be practice, I think, for us to, to interact with, to think about, and test against the rest of Scripture. Um, if, if the things in the New Covenant have changed, things in our situation are different. But if we can understand what Solomon is trying to tell us about how the world works and how to behave righteously in the midst of it, letting that understanding um, challenge us and intrigue us, convict us, encourage us, letting the Holy Spirit do its work, I think can just begin to develop this, this feeling or practice of wisdom in our own lives. Um, Ecclesiastes, of course, is, is a different book altogether. And I think that what we do see in that is the, the same proclamation that's happening at the beginning of Proverbs is that the fear of the Lord is greater than any idolatry we could find for it. And that message is the same today as it was then. So this is a bit of a, what's the phrase, insider baseball kind of a question, Ooh. but I'm just curious about your, your, your thoughts about it. So scholars are generally pretty confident that Proverbs, especially Proverbs 22, 23, and 24 are adapted from some Egyptian material mm -hmm. uh, that's that's very, very similar. And the Egyptian material, as far as we can tell, is older than Proverbs is. And then at the end of Proverbs, we get a couple excerpts from people who may or may not be Israelites. Agur, we don't know if that's a Gentile or an Israelite Lemuel. person. King, King Lemuel is not mentioned at all in the histories, so he may or may not be a, an Israelite figure. And so I just want to, yeah, just get your thoughts about, let's just say that that's the case, that those chapters and Proverbs are basically yeah. copy and pasted from an, a, a pre-existing Egyptian uh, Proverbs or wisdom document. Like, what does that tell us about what scripture is? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and well, let, let's yeah. just stay with, stick with that for a minute, and then I'll have a, another question after that. What we have in scripture, not just here, but also there's other places. I mean, Paul certainly has sayings from other other non-Christian mm -hmm. philosophers that he brings into his letters and to, we see him using in the book of Acts. And they don't become less valuable because they were found in a different source. What we see is wisdom being found in some amount or in some way in different parts of the world. It is... A person can live in this world without the special revelation, which is our term for scripture, you know, the, the, the divine speech from God to people. And a person can live without that and still come to some wise understandings, many wise understandings, right? We see in other religions echoes and important aspects of wisdom, some of which really challenge us, um, that does not mean they are greater. They are not, but they are to say that there's no wisdom found outside of special revelation would be wrong. So what I think has happened is that whether it's Solomon or whoever's compiling the Proverbs 
has, by the Holy Spirit, perceived wisdom in the words of these other people and brought them in because they are appropriate and helpful for the Yahweh follower in their development of wisdom. And so we can stamp them and be confident in them and and rest confidently in them. They're not like Job's friends, where we see these these statements that are that are brought in with different perspectives that are not wisdom. They're they're being endorsed. And I, I think that's okay. That does not what that means though is that the Holy Spirit is capable of using people even who do not know him to benefit and bless his people for the rest of time. And you kind of you you sort of already answered this, but maybe just more more uh uh, directly, like how does that does that shed any wisdom for us now? Just in, in kind of all the different influences and different things in our current culture and moment, and just because I think sometimes you can see streams in the church or traditions in the church that say it's the Bible and nothing else that informs our thinking. And I think that obviously, I mean, if someone's been listening to this podcast, then they already know that neither of us think that way, <laughs> right? <laughs> Uh, and so maybe, I guess just this is an opportunity to maybe just talk about that a little bit more of like, how do we, how, how does that, yeah, I don't know, just oh, how does that work question. or like, how do we, yeah, I don't know, just your thoughts, not necessarily a definitive answer, but just, because we've talked a few weeks ago, I we asked, we talked specifically uh-huh. about non-Christian scholarship. And so we've kind of already addressed that just in terms of the Bible. But like when we think about other culture voices, other religions, you know, uh, scientific discourse, like just how, how do you, I suppose, as a, as a person or just, yeah, just how does that all kind of yeah hang together? Wow. So uh, there's, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why a person might engage literature or examples that are not explicitly Christian ones or biblical ones. Um, for entertainment is a big part of that, but can there be um, a good reason to look for wisdom outside of scripture today, or how could a person do that? I think that it requires some maturity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it requires you to know your Bible because right. if it contradicts scripture, then I, I think that that, that disqualifies it from, from being good, healthy wisdom. Now that we have to be careful here because if it's a proverbial way that contradicts a proverb in the book of Proverbs, that doesn't mean it's bad mm-hmm. because those aren't full without exception promises. But you know, if there's, if there's, if I'm reading about um, someone's philosophy or, or practice or encouragements in the act of war and, you know, totally wiping out my enemies is, is what's being advocated. Um, I can be pretty sure that that doesn't really jive with, with Jesus's perspective on how we are to treat other people. And so I, I think that it just requires that kind of wisdom and discernment to recognize this isn't this isn't good for my soul to take in as wisdom. Now, there can be historical value. There can be all kinds of other reasons to read the books. But I think it just requires discernment. I read a lot of things with people whose philosophies are different than, than mine, either within the church from different Christian um, lines or, or practices of thoughts or from outside of the church. Um, and it's important to be able to do that and and evaluate it as you, as you go. I would certainly never say to avoid it altogether. I think the goal is to have a mind that is sharp and devoted to Yahweh and familiar with his word so that you can, you can perceive what he might want you to gain from those kinds of readings. I, yeah, I think I agree. I think it's right to say that it does require maturity. I think it requires community 
you know, and so it's like we come upon something that is powerful and, and seems useful and good to us. I think it's good to then bring it up with other Christians and be like, what, you know, how do you see this? How do you read this? You know, and it's, I think as well, you know, there is, there is value in, <laughs> there's value in reading things or watching things or listening to things that basically will just tell you what you already know. Right. <laughs> Uh-huh. And that's a lot of what preaching is, right? I mean, so much of what a, what a sermon is is things that people already know, you know, and yeah. and uh, and that's a good thing. I mean, we need to be reminded. Obviously, we're forgetful and frail. You know, I think we need to be encouraged. I mean, so that's all still true. And yeah, and I think that, that and there's nothing wrong with that, and that's a good thing. And, and, and perhaps we, sh- we could even say that that should be the majority of, you know, uh, your your diet, so to speak, of the things you take in. But I think it can be very good, even when it's things that you know you're not going to agree with. Like, I think it can even be valuable, not necessarily to, to take wisdom from it directly, but rather to strengthen your own thinking mm-hmm. and to, to really <laughs> to strengthen your own wisdom by exercising it in terms of engaging with something that, that is uh, contrary to your beliefs or Absolutely. contrary to what scripture teaches and and to, yeah, I think just to kind of to play off of that, right? And so, you know, you you uh, are exposed to somebody else's ideas about what the Bible is, you know, and they might be wrong, you know, or they might be totally different, you know, but like that doesn't mean, oh, I should shut down and say it's from the devil and not, you know, it's like, well, there's an opportunity there to, to then reflect on, okay, well, what do I actually think and why do I think that and how is what I think different than what they think? Um, and I think that that, that is that is good if you go into it, you know, with that sort of an attitude, not a combative like I have to defeat, you know, this mm-hmm. viewpoint, like a annihilation thing of like I can listen to none of this oh, because yeah. it's not coming from you know a place that I trust or or whatever else. And uh, yeah, and so I think, like you said, I mean, I think it, I think that wisdom, <laughs> wisdom can be gained directly by reflecting on a proverb from the Bible, you know, and, and, but then also wisdom can be gained by wrestling with something that is false and just kind of thinking through why it's false, why we don't believe that, you know, why that doesn't jive with the truth as revealed in scripture. And I agree completely. And in our fulfillment of the gospel mandate to, to spread the kingdom one of the things that we're not going to, you will not be able to do is avoid interaction with ideas or beliefs that are different right. than yours. As you're talking to people about faith, they're going to be talking to you about faith as right. well. And if you have no practice with listening to views that are different than yours without hostility, mm-hmm. then you're going to be very frustrated in your attempts to, to share what you believe with other people. And also, if you can gain the discernment to listen to their view and pick out the good and right. find a point of contact there and build on it, you'll be much more successful in being able to tell them about Jesus because you'll be using a point where they're right. They've right. perceived something that's true and you agree. And and I just think that's a very good practice. Well, and that is, I mean, that's what we see Paul doing, as you referenced earlier in the book of Acts. I mean, he quotes philosophers as a way of, mm-hmm. you know, saying, okay, this was true, so let's let's move forward kind of with what you already think. So our readings for next week will be from 1 Kings 17 
all the way through to 2 Kings 10.31, and then 2 Chronicles 18, all the way through 2 Chronicles 22. So the, our readings for next week are entirely from Kings and Chronicles, dealing with the stories of kings of Israel and Judah and some of the surrounding areas. We hear about good kings who call their people to cast off their idols and worship Yahweh, but mostly we hear about bad kings who lead their people into greater and greater idolatry. We're going to hear about the sins of Jeroboam over and over again. Jeroboam was one of Solomon's officials who was prophesied to become king over ten of Israel's tribes because Solomon's idolatry at the end of his life caused Yahweh to remove the full kingdom from his, his line. Jeroboam fled and returned when Rehoboam, Solomon's son, took the throne. But because of Rehoboam's harshness, all the tribes except for Judah and Benjamin seceded and made Jeroboam king. His sin was in leading the Israelites into idolatry. Right at the beginning, he sets up two golden calves so that his people won't return to Israel to worship, or to Judah to worship. This leading away from worshiping Yahweh and into idolatry characterizes the northern kings and some of the southern ones as well. Our readings will also cover the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is the template of a prophet. Yahweh worked through him to perform miracle after miracle from a desire to turn the hearts of his people away from the Baals and back to himself. Elisha is his successor, who receives a double portion of his spirit. The miracles that these two perform are incredible. In fact, the first two resurrections in scripture happen in their ministries. When you read about them, I want, you to, I want to encourage you to see the similarities to many of Jesus' miracles. That's very, very important. And if we don't talk about that now, we certainly will once we get to Jesus' ministry. And one more note. As you read about the kings in the north and the south, you may start to feel like it's exhausting. We see them making the same mistakes over and over again. I think we're supposed to. The book of Kings tells us why, in no uncertain terms, God's people will eventually be sent into exile. But also, we see in God's people a picture of ourselves, finding ourselves lapsing into the same sins over and over again, even knowing how harmful they are to us. The story of Kings should convict us as well of the absurdity of our sinfulness and remind us of the incredible grace of a God who can forgive his people despite all their wickedness and forgive us even when we act like they did. So thinking about the miracles, and you already referenced this, that a lot of them uh, are prefigurings of different things that Jesus will do. And I don't really have a question attached to this, just a comment that I think is just worthwhile that I think Elijah and Elisha's acts um, anticipate kind of the way that Jesus, the the way that Jesus talks about his own miracles, Mm -hmm. right? That it's not, they don't do them kind of willy nilly, like they're not magicians or wizards. They're also not like, it's not that, you know, like there just seems to be particular things that Yahweh empowers his prophets to do. And I think you see this just with the the um, similarities between Elijah and Elisha's miracles and Jesus' miracles in terms of raising people from the dead, uh, multiplying food, purifying, mm-hmm. you know, water, springs, these different things. Life. Yeah. And so it's it's just interesting to think about, you know, that... Yeah, that 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 it's that the miracle. How, how, how I'm trying to think about what I'm trying to say here, that God can. I'm not saying that God can't do anything, but rather that the miracle miracles are like 
specific course corrections according Mm. to God's plan or the unfolding of God's kingdom. Like they're not just these arbitrary, you know, oh, and I can do this. You know, like, (laughs) I mean, they're just, they're, they're very specific. So like when Elijah and Elisha do these things, you know, they are, they are revealing, I think the, the, the truth or the reality of, of Yahweh's kingdom you know, and, and, and I think definitely in counterpoint to the kings themselves. You know, <laughs> yes. and, well, when you think about like the way that the Psalms and uh, some of the different parts of the Bible talk about Israel and Judah's kings, that the monarchy, at least in a poetic, figurative sense, was supposed to be life-giving and purifying yes. and leading to abundance and all these different things. So especially with Is- the kings of Israel the Northern kingdom that they're not doing that. And so God then raises up these prophetic figures to do the things that the King was supposed to be doing and didn't. And then again, you can carry that into the gospel story of how Israel's rulers in Jesus's day, Jewish and Gentile were not, you know, bringing abundance and peace and, yeah. and healing and life to the people. And so then God raised up Jesus to do that certainly through his, his ministry and miracles then of course ultimately through his death and resurrection so that's just it's a that's a neat is a stupid word for it but it's a neat it's a that's a powerful that's a meaningful resonance yeah. between these stories and and the the story of Jesus yeah. resonating is a good word stories that resonate yeah. together that that seem like skipping stones of mm-hmm. the same ideas happening over and over again and Elijah and Elisha are definitely types of Jesus yeah so I had a specific question about some of the miracles. So both Elijah and Elisha raise boys from the dead. Yes. And both times they physically lay on top of them to do that. And I just wanted some thoughts on <laughs> why. Why yeah. did they think to do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jesus doesn't do that. No, he doesn't. He <laughs> raised people from the dead. So like, what, you know. Yeah, what a good question. So, just because it's just an odd detail. <laughs> the story, the one that's most interesting is Elisha's. So, Elisha has been staying with this um, this family that was childless and prophesied because they they made a room for him on their roof, which was common. In the it sounds like they're like putting him out, like mm-hmm. you know, you can stay in the backyard, but that's actually what hospitality looked like in those times. In that kind of weather, staying on the roof was 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 just fine, and. Um, to repay them or in thankfulness for their, their generosity or just as an appropriateness to repair uh, something that they've been dealing with, he prophesies that they would have a child. That child is born and then that child dies while Elisha is not there. And when Elisha is told of this, the first thing he does is he tells his servant to take his staff and lay it on the boy. And then he follows behind. But it's as though Elisha expects the staff itself to... To do it. And that is the kind of thing we see with Jesus, right? Is that the the he can just give a word mm-hmm. when he's not present and the right. person still comes back to life. And right. I think we're supposed to connect these stories. Whereas Elisha was incapable of that, Jesus is. But when when he goes, it's almost as though the picture we're being given is the spirit in the prophets. You know, we we have the the connection between spirit and breath in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And as he's as Elisha lays on top of the boy, eye to eye, mouth to mm-hmm. mouth, um, we could be led to think that he's giving him CPR. He's not giving him CPR. What he's doing is he's letting his like prophetic 
blessing, the, the life-giving nature of the spirit that rests on him spread and warm and give life to the boy. And so it's, it's very much a, a, a putting himself in proximity to death with the knowledge that the spirit that is on him is life-giving mm-hmm. and willing it to spread to the boy. Our, I mean, what we're very clearly being shown is that Elisha is Elijah 2.0. Right, right. And, and so they, there's some of the same things that happen to Elijah, even some of the same places that he goes. Mm-hmm. He just travels to. We're not told there's any reason for that. Right, he just shows up. He just yeah. shows up. And the reason for that, I think, is to make us really understand that he's the 2.0. And I think Yahweh sets these events up so that the stories can be reflecting that... He's well, the carrying and, on. And even going back to the the uh, connections with Jesus, I mean, it is interesting that like, so Jesus also seems, appears to just randomly move around the countryside. I mean, there doesn't, until he kind of sets his face to go to Jerusalem, there's not necessarily a set itinerary. But we also know that Jesus was preaching, whereas for Elijah and Elisha, that's not said but one wonders, you mm-hmm. know, what were they doing, you know, as yeah. they wander around to these different towns and, and cities. You know, I mean, John the Baptist is obviously a, I mean, he is the second coming of Elijah. Uh, Jesus calls him that. And so, but John the Baptist was also a preacher, like he was mm-hmm. preaching repentance. And so I just wonder if if that's, you know, not necessarily stated in the stories and Kings, but, mm-hmm. but that that was kind of part of what was going on as well. Jewish tradition is that they did preach, oh, well, um, but there the, you go. The, they were just not written down. Well, and I and so that leads to my next question. So we have Elijah and Elisha as prophets. And then we also have throughout these chapters, references to many other prophets. Yeah, we do. <laughs> none of whose, as far as we can tell, none of whose words are written down. Mm-hmm. Elijah writes a letter to one of the Southern Kings that's preserved in Chronicles. But apart from that, we don't have any written words from any of these, these uh, figures. It's so like, what did these people do all day? It's so like these prophets of Bethel or prophets of Jericho. Like, what were they doing? Like, what did it mean yeah. to be, if you're not, if you're, yeah, just what did they do? What were they doing all day that counted as being prophets? You know, like what was their role in society? Just what, a great what, what do we know about that? So the prophet, so the word prophets gets attached to large groups a couple of times, sometimes specifically prophets of Baal or Asherah, um, but sometimes of Yahweh. Obadiah, for example, is a, not the Obadiah who writes a prophetic book later, but the name of a person that Elijah encounters who's been hiding a hundred prophets in yeah. the caves. And what it seems like is that these, that term prophet means different things when it's attached to different people. They're not prophets like Elijah is. In fact, he refers to himself as the only one, despite right. knowing about these prophets in the caves. And so one of the one of the things that I think is happening there is devoted Yahweh worshipers, um, either in a group of some kind or like some form of of specific intentional body of worshipers who will not turn away to to um, the idols that are presented to them seem to be given this term prophet. Um, and sometimes it seems like Yahweh uses them. Uh, some other thoughts that I would just add is I think that, you know, we've, we've discussed a couple times that the Bible gestures at, but does not really tell us much about there being sort of other, other categories of like, quote unquote, religious professional <laughs> in the life of ancient Israel. Uh-huh. You know, so people who weren't Levites, who weren't priests, and who weren't uh, published prophets. I mean, I don't know what the right term is, you know, but but who nonetheless were not just run-of-the-mill mm-hmm. Israelites. 
You know, you think about the the women who ministered at the gate of the tabernacle slash temple, the Nazarites, you know, and so perhaps these are groups of Nazarites who mm-hmm. have dedicated themselves, you know, for a period. And so then they gather in kind of prophetic schools, you know, or prophetic guilds mm-hmm. to do their, their prophesying. I think it's also worth, I don't think we've really, we haven't really dug into like what biblical prophecy is or like what, what that word means. I figured we would do that yeah. when we got to prophets. Well, just, yeah, but just all I'll say about it now is just that, that it has more to do with proclamation, like proclaiming the mind of God and the, mm-hmm. the will of God rather than like prediction about what's going to happen in the future. And so, yeah, that doesn't mean that all these people were making predictions or, or, you know, but just rather that they are engaged in kind of this, this proclamation. And I wonder too, I've read, you know, and this is speculation cause we just don't, we don't have a lot of, of detail from the Bible itself, but like we know that, I mean, these two, they more or less had disciples. I mean, groups of prophets that followed them. You know, we know that there were there were students around Isaiah. Jeremiah had his scribe and, and probably others who, who were around him. And so, and especially since a lot of the written prophets are also poets, like it comes in the form of poetry, uh, that some, I've seen just some scholars speculate that these lesser prophets, so to speak, the nameless prophets, that it's it's almost like that they were they fulfilled what we, what we could call like the role of the bard in other societies, mm-hmm. like people who wandered around, entered a village, sang songs, told mm-hmm. stories, you know, and that they were kind of the wandering storytellers, the wandering, and that these prophets, the big prophets, kind of established almost like genres so to speak of prophecy to where you know okay the the isaiah prophet you know would come and and tell stories and sing his songs and then maybe a few weeks later the jeremiah prophet you know like in terms of the follower the student Mm -hmm. of these different prophets and again i mean it's speculation but it's like yeah that kind of makes sense to me i mean i think it israel would have had storytellers Mm -hmm. and like the bard figures and we don't get any kind of indication of who those people would have been besides these bands of, of prophets who wandered around. I think that's very likely to be true. Um, it, I just, well, and I told us more. I know. Well, and I think that even that that might be how some of these prophecies were maintained until they were written down. You know, I mean, we know that Jeremiah had his scribe, Baruch, 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 um, you know, he so he literally had someone, you know, writing out the the prophecies for him. But like, we just don't know, like Isaiah or Habakkuk or whoever else, you know, that it, how did those prophecies survive, so to speak, if they weren't immediately written down? And I think part of that answer is because they had students who mm-hmm. took these poems, songs, and then told them, you know, throughout the land across time until eventually somebody did write them down. Sure. So you mentioned Baal, uh, Baal. Baal. Why was the worship of Baal? Because we see Israel, the northern kingdom especially, uh, I think falling prey to this particular false god really throughout its history or starting with Ahab on. on, Like what was so appealing about Hmm. that? What, you know, why were they so, it just, because it just seems like it's a very easy, like there's really no resistance (laughs) <laughs> it's like la da da, and now we worship Baal, <laughs> and that's it. That here we are. So uh, I mean, the proper way to say is Baal, but that gets obnoxious after a little yes, while, yes. and so we'll say Baal. Um, and Baal Zavuv, 
instead of uh, Beelzebub or Beelzebub or whatever. But um, Baal is a Canaanite god who is over the is like the storm god, the bringer of rain. And so we can see in some ways why an agrarian society would either be able to like mix him up with Yahweh worship because mm-hmm. Yahweh is also seen as the, mm-hmm. the controller of the weather. Um, and Baal is also seen as the, the chief of his, of gods, of the uh-huh. Canaanite gods. And so again, we can see how, you know, it would mix easy. But the thing about Baal worship is Baal was known to get very excited by watching people have sex. And so the idea would be to worship Baal real well you would have lots and lots and lots of adults getting together to have sex. And I don't think we need to explore very much or strain our imaginations too hard to see why it would be easy to lead a people astray by promising them that if they just have more sex, they'll get more good weather, Mm -hmm. uh, especially for an agrarian society like this one. But we see it too with, I mean, Ahab seems to be a really weak-minded king yeah. and his wife seems to really run the show and she's the one who brings this, right? And right. and that infection stays in the Northern Kingdom story. A lot of people see Baal as another name for Satan, that this is the, the evil one, the primary um, rebeller against Yahweh. He certainly is in the Old Testament, the greatest threat to mm-hmm. God's people. As far as that goes, these stories represent more of a, a trouble for Yahweh worship than yeah. any of the ones before. He's in fact, the foremost false mm-hmm. god. Yep. In fact, Elijah and Elisha rise up in response, it seems like, to Baal worship coming mm-hmm. in. While these other, while Je- the sin of Jeroboam was a problem, we don't see figures like Elijah and Elisha becoming necessary until, until Baal worship comes on the scene. And the rebuke against Baal worship has to be really severe and violent. Um, but that's who he is. He's a seducer of of Yahweh's people. And I think he does that through the use of sex with the promise of rain. Ritualized sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in, in, in the ancient world, and I mean, I think we still see this in our own thinking many in many ways, but just this idea of like a sympathetic, sympathetic rituals, like as on earth, so in heaven. You know, it's just like, okay, so we're being fertile down here, which means that they'll be fertile up there meaning more rain and good stuff for us. Well, because I think the entire the entire ancient worldview was built on that idea. I mean, that's that was the idea of the pagan temples, is that what we're doing here is is going to be reflected by what happens in, in the heavenly realm. Yes. So if we keep our temple clean and do all the things we're supposed to do, that means that the cosmos will keep running the way know, it's supposed to. In, the way it's supposed to. And so that's a... And we think that now, right? Um, you know, and we even talk, we even talk about that from like a, uh, therapeutic perspective of like when people are going through tough times and they hyper-focus on like the details they can control. Well, why are they doing that? It's because in some way at the base of our brain, we think that if we can at least control one aspect of our lives and somehow that means we have control over bigger, you know, the bigger details and, and we don't. And I think that, you know, so much of Israelite religion just looking at it, it looks exactly the same. They also have a temple. They also mm-hmm. have sacrifices. They also have priests. But the the undergirding concepts are different, are, are diametrically opposed to 
what's happening. In fact, they're totally reversed that what Israel does is is celebrating and acknowledging what Yahweh has already done in the heavenly realm. Yes. Rather than saying, now that we have done this ritual, then now God will do the same thing in heaven. And that carries through into Christianity, right? You're baptized. I mean, I don't want to get into deep water here, but like you're baptized because Jesus has saved you and washed you clean from your sin. Not now that you've been baptized, God will, will, you know, switch things around in the heavenly realm. Israel never thought, or at least Orthodox, the official party line was never that Yahweh stays king as long as we maintain his temple. Right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we see that, you know, other other nations and people groups were destroyed and dragged into exile by more powerful nations and they ceased to exist and yes. their religion died that didn't happen with ancient israel and and the people of judah i think because well one because their god is the real one yes. but <laughs> but from the from the bottom up just that they they just never had the same assumptions about about their god that that uh, or at least again of the official version you know never had what the common people thought who can say, you know, and I'm sure that, that just like us, you know, they, they also had their own confusions and, and mistakes and well, everything Well, that's the else. whole thing behind the, the book of Exodus. Pharaoh thinks that he can wait until the Israelites leave and then chase them down because, yeah. again, the God is going to be right. stationary. Um, also, and I want to say something about this. The word Beelzebub, which we see in the New Testament, comes from our readings this this week. Yes. And the... What Beelzebub means, it Baal Zavuv means the Lord of the Flies, mm-hmm. but it was probably done by the writer of of Kings as a disrespect to that deity, because one letter difference is um, Beelzebul, which is the Lord of Princes, mm-hmm. and so that's very much like the King of Kings and yeah. their unwillingness to write <laughs> the Lord of Princes for yeah. this pagan deity. Um, I think led them to mock him instead. Mm-hmm. The the Lord of the Flies was never supposed to be an honoring or a a, a scary um, title that that deity would have liked. It was right. a mocking of him from the beginning. Yeah. So moving on, First Kings nineteen, Elijah goes to Sinai. He arrives at Mount Sinai. Yeah. And he has an experience there. And I'm just curious about how does First Kings nineteen relate to Exodus nineteen? when Yahweh first comes down on Sinai to reveal the Ten Commandments to the people. Obviously, it seems like those two stories are linked uh, by location, by circumstance, you know. And so just what what is First Kings, this first part of First Kings 19, trying to tell us about who Yahweh is Man. in relation to, I mean, because it's obviously in conversation with Exodus 19. Yeah. So in Exodus 19, if you remember the listener, the Yahweh comes down and in this booming voice speaks the Ten Commandments to the people and they're terrified. It's too much. And they ask for him to not speak to them like that again. And so Moses goes up, right? A representative who Yahweh is going to speak to and then bring Yahweh's words to the people. But he's speaking in this big booming voice. And what we have in the story of Elijah is there's this terrible wind and then an earthquake and then fire. And there's no, like, Yahweh's not in those things. So mm-hmm. these these big, huge events that you would think is God speaking. And Exodus 19 would lead you to think that those are the kinds of ways you're going to encounter him. That's not where he is. He's in the whisper. 
And so Elijah goes out and he, he listens. I think that there's this story that's happening in scripture as, as we have gotten further from the fall that goes all the way up to, to Jesus. And then that's kind of the pinnacle and it changes completely at that point. But Yahweh's communication with his people becomes more distant in some ways. And so we have in the garden, he's walking with them in the garden, right? And the story of Genesis that goes from that and then we get dreams, right? In Exodus, we get a booming voice and here all the way in First Kings, we're getting a whisper. And I think a couple of things about that. I think that one of the things that that tells his people is to not expect the big booming voice that happened in Exodus 19 again. It's not, that's not how he's going to communicate from here on. And I, that's not because he can't, that's not somehow he's been removed from creation or anything like that. It's because it's how he's choosing to communicate at this point is through things that require you to pay attention. Whereas you couldn't have gotten away from that big booming voice in Exodus 19. I think you have to really listen to hear a whisper. And it requires your effort and your desire to seek what Yahweh is saying to you. And I think that still goes for us today where a lot of Christians will look for big signs of what what God has in mind for us. Or um, just, I don't know, big movements of the Spirit when most of our interaction with, with Yahweh, when we see his work or we hear what he, he wants us to, to hear, comes from something we have, to, we have to pay attention to, we have to listen for. I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know if that's uh, a good encapsulation of what's happening. And there's certainly more to it, I think. But the, the, the takeaway for me is, I think, there. So we've, we've uh, mentioned a few times Wicked King Ahab. Uh, and his evil queen Jezebel, and one of the things they do towards the end of First Kings is they wrongly uh, steal basically yeah, this vineyard do. from a man named Naboth or Naboth. Why? I guess I just I I I want to touch a little bit on like what was their. Mm, so Ahab could not. It seems that he could not just outrightly take it which is, I think, in some ways it strikes us a little odd because he's the king and it seems like kings should just be able to take whatever land they want. You know, we live in our social setting. You know, there's something called eminent domain where right. the government, <laughs> you know, the local government, federal government, whatever can, I mean, there's this process, but I mean, they can just take your land if they if, if it's proven or whatever that there's a, a uh, some public good that, that could come of it. So... What what was their concept? Like, what was the land? What did land ownership mean? Because it's obviously a little different than what we think. Oh, that's not where I thought you were going. Um, and so I just want I just wanted you to speak into that. You know, like what was the land to them? Kind of in this nitty gritty sense of like Naboth did not want to sell. Why? You know, why why wouldn't he have sold? I'm sure Ahab was going to overpay. Why couldn't the king just take it? Like, why did they yeah. have to go through this dog and pony show to to steal it from him? Well, I think, so we have to read into some of the politicking that's happening here, and that's not perfect. I think the bottom line is Ahab probably could have taken it. I mean, he certainly didn't respect um, Yahweh's rules or commandments in the time before that, but there was, I think, a worry about a consequence, a social consequence that could come back on him if he did. And so I think the whole story of Jezebel setting up this man to die so that Ahab then could take it is working of the the system of of the Israelites in their land in a way that will benefit the king. 
to avoid the social backlash that could happen. And they're certainly not above killing their kings if they step out of line. But what the land was to these people was there were, I mean, long-standing promises made to families in the book of Leviticus about what part, uh, or in Numbers, I'm sorry, not Leviticus, um, what part of the land was going to belong to which families. And these were very important to them. And also there was this promise that any land you do give away returns to you after a certain period of time. And the idea behind that was that the tribes would stay deeply connected to the land, their apportionment from Yahweh over the generations. So that even if something happens and somebody has to, um, you know, sell some of their land or give, give away some of their land, that land will eventually return to them. What, what Ahab and Jezebel are, I think, afraid of is just coming in and taking this choice piece of land because that will be a not, I don't think they're worried about offending Yahweh, but a, an offense that could be used to resist the king um, because it will be bothersome. And so Jezebel sets this up because you can, I think, for a couple of reasons. People are going to be less, I, I mean, Naboth seems to be pretty, um, pretty powerful in some way. And it could just be that he's popular and they're afraid of backlash. But this sin, which doesn't strike us as Ahab or Jezebel's worst, recurs. This place becomes a place where um, we see several things happen. We see several people die. Like we hear about it over and over again. And it really does just seem like this is a final repudiation of everything Yahweh has done for his people. Like it's the last bit that they've gotten rid of. That in a heightened way, they understood that, or at least righteous, a righteous Israelite would have understood that it was really a trust from the Lord. You know, and that's so in some ways it wasn't theirs necessarily even to give away, you know, mm-hmm. or to sell. And I think that's reflected in the Jubilee laws that even when they did, um, it reverted back, you know, after after so many years, just because Yahweh was actually the landowner. He was the actual king, um, not Ahab or, or whoever else. So then Moab, the kingdom, or it's not an independent kingdom at this point. It was a a vassal state of of, uh, Israel, but it rebels. And Ahab prepares to go and put the rebellion down. And he consults a bunch of prophets who lie to him and tell him to do it. And it'll go great. And then uh, Jehoshaphat convinces him to bring in an actual prophet from Yahweh who... At first, lies. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Micaiah seems like an interesting character. But then tells Ahab the truth, and he describes this heavenly court scene. And I just wanted you to speak into, like, how are we to take this? Is Micaiah, is it this like a parable where he's kind of like setting out like, you know, once upon a time in heaven, God wanted to get you to die, <laughs> Ahab? Is it figurative language? Like what? What yeah. is he? How would the how would the ancient Israelites have heard what Micaiah what Micaiah describes and, and kind of understood that to be? Man, this is this is such a big um, thing. So a few times in Scripture we have this these tellings of the veil sort of being pulled back for us to see what's happening in heaven. It happens in it's Job one and two, um, Zechariah three, and Isaiah six are the ones that come to mind. There are probably more. But there are these these moments where we are told about what's happening in the in the in the heavens, and they're they're like council scenes. We're seeing Yahweh interacting with His divine council in one way or another, and in this case, we have this reflection of when Yahweh works on earth, 
he prefers to work through people, right? We even see that with Isaiah's call later on in one of these scenes. You know, he's, who's going to go for us? And he waits for a volunteer. This is very similar in the spiritual realm. Yahweh looks for a volunteer and one of them volunteers. So I think the picture we get is that the same way that Yahweh likes to work on earth, which is through, through people, he prefers to work in the heavens, which is through spirits. And the, I just find that fascinating. Um, I think that tells us something about Yahweh. But the, do I think that this is just figurative language? It could be, but it doesn't seem to contradict the other times we get this kind of language. In fact, it goes really well with like Isaiah 6 and so on. And so, and even in Job 1 and 2, you know, so I think something's revealed here that we're getting a picture into the divine realm. It's a cool passage, but a weird one because it takes you completely by surprise. Mm -hmm. You do not see it coming and it seems unnecessary. Um, the prophets don't usually say this kind of thing. So Elijah apparently does not die, but is bodily taken yeah, into if, the heavenly realm. Uh-huh. Uh, why? Like, how are we meant to read that? Why does that happen to him like that? Yeah, it's a good question. So it's happened once before in the Bible with Enoch. And Enoch was known as a person who exceptionally walked with the Lord. And as a reward for that, or in response to that, he was just actually taken up into heaven. And I think that we're supposed to connect Elijah to that. So Elijah is the, the picture of a prophet. He's the prophet extraordinaire. He's the one that is seen as the head of the prophets throughout scripture, which is interesting because we don't have a book from him, right? We don't, other than that one letter in Chronicles, we don't have any of his written words. Whereas Isaiah, you know, has... So much that he gives us that he feeds us with directly. You know, we, we hear about things Elijah did, but they don't feed us in the same way that some of the other prophets did. But I think what we take from this is that Elijah was so in tune and obedient to Yahweh that as a gift or a response, he was not made to experience death bodily. He was whisked away and taken up into heaven. And I think that's amazing. So then Elisha kind of, not kind of, he literally takes up uh, Elijah's mantle. Well, the picture is that as Elijah's being taken away, he like grabs his, his yeah, garment grabs and it rips in his, his, in his hand, yeah. which would be nuts. <clears throat> um, and then the first act of power that Elisha does after this is curses a bunch of youths <laughs> uh-huh. that come out of Bethel and make fun of his baldness and then bears come and maul them. How is the the uh, sweet, sweet heart of Jesus revealed to us <laughs> in that particular story, Clayton? So I have an answer to this. I don't know if it's the right one, but it's the way that I've dealt with it. Um, the, the rabbis early on hated this story so much, they actually said it didn't happen. <laughs> the, and, and so ni- there's a saying that went with it, like neither by bear or by something else. And it was their way of saying, like, it, sh- it actually, of all of the, the, the parts of scripture, doesn't belong there. Which is nuts. Like, that's, that's, they hated this story that much because it's, it's difficult. <clears throat> Here's what I think. Um, so the word that we're given, if you read your King James, you actually read children or boys. Like, little children, maybe. And that's, that's hard. So it's just, what, three verses. I'll go ahead and read them in the NIV. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. 
He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. So that word boys is misleading. Um, This is, adulthood was an interesting thing in ancient Israel. You started to reach adulthood at like 12 or 13, but you didn't really become an adult until about 30. And the word boys can be used adequately for young men of soldiering age. That's a common use of the word. So we're talking about 18, 19, 20-year-old boys. And if that's the case, I mean, it changes the picture completely. If there's a group of six and seven-year-old boys calling someone bald and the bears come out and kill them, I don't know how to deal with that. If this is 18 to 20-year-old men insulting a prophet in a way that might be perceived as threatening, then, then Yahweh is protecting his prophet and we're seeing the divine mantle resting on him. And I choose to believe that because I can't make sense of the other. Um, The evidence works fine of the text, works fine with either interpretation. But the way we know Yahweh, I just just don't think it's 7 to 10 year old boys. I think it's young men who could have killed the the balding prophet. Uh, So a little later on in chapter 5, a Gentile general from Syria, Naaman. uh, (laughs) Yeah comes because they know that you know the reputation of these prophets has has uh, gone out to the other countries and i mean israel has been fighting syria for most of the last section of these books so just that in itself is is remarkable to think about you know an enemy general coming and p- perhaps secret like it was like a behind enemy lines you know special operation to get their general to this prophet to be healed but there's one aspect of the story, you know, and Jesus directly references the story, um, which is also, I think, yeah, just worth uh, remembering. But that at the end, after Naaman has been healed, 18 and 18, in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, the king of Syria, goes into the house of Rimon, a false god, to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And Elisha said to him, go in peace. So I just want you to comment on that. So like Naaman is enabling the worship of a false god by letting the king lean on his arm. The phrase bow to Rimon is repeated several times in, in just this brief mm-hmm. uh, verse. And yet Elisha, you know, t- tells him to go in peace. That's all right. When you go home, that's fine that that happens. Like, just help me understand yeah. that. We see some, I mean, Naaman, I think his loyalty has been moved to Yahweh. I don't think there's any question about that at this point. And we see some other misunderstand or some misunderstandings from Naaman about who Yahweh is. For example, just before that, he says, let me take some dirt from Israel to have with me. Because somehow, like, worshiping Yahweh would only be appropriate if the dirt came from Israel. Which isn't something that needs to be to happen, right? Yahweh can be worshipped from literally anywhere on earth. But the, the, so he he has this misunderstanding, but then he has this picture of, I'm going to go, my job is to go with, with the king into this place. And he bows down and, and in order for him to be able to do that, I have to bow with him. My heart doesn't belong to that God anymore. It's, it belongs to Yahweh, but please may I be forgiven for this act of bowing. And so I think that it's a it's a humble request for a outward expression of duty that will not reflect his heart. And in this case, 
it seems like Yahweh says okay, because the heart is now come to belong to Yahweh. I think it would make more sense to us in some ways if he said, absolutely not. You don't belong in the Temple of Ramon. Right. Like, sorry, let the king fall. You know, and, and we just picture this feeble old man then bowing down and tumbling to the ground. But I, I, I think that we have a compassionate God and a God that also understands that everything in Naaman's life um, will be completely disrupted. You can't actually live if you stop bowing to the king or bowing with the king when you're in Naaman's position. And so he allows a Yahweh worshiper to continue in a very high and powerful position in an enemy country. And that makes, I think, sense to me, especially since the heart now belongs to Yahweh and that's made abundantly clear. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's.